in the 90s and early 2000s, the, the music world was taken by storm by a unique music act called the Three Tenors. And I think most of you here are familiar with the Three Tenors in one way or another. They attracted fans across a, a number of different musical genres and they became uh, very famous and one of the most lucrative musical acts of all time. But as I thought about the three tenors, there's one that I always forgot. And in conversations, I would list the first two, and then I'd always be like, and, and there's that other guy. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many of you remember the third guy. I, I don't want you to say it out loud because I don't want you to ruin my illustration, but um, Pavarotti and Placido Domingo you know, were, were the ones that always came readily to my mind. The third guy I always forgot. There was even a, a, a Seinfeld sitcom episode in which the three tenors are referred to often, and all through the episode they're referred to as Placido, Pavarotti, and that other guy. Okay, so I'll ask you, do you remember who the third? Yeah. You do? Okay, thanks. Um, uh, Jose Cajeras often seemed to be left out, didn't get as much attention um, as the other two. The God of the universe has revealed himself to us as a trinity. One God, yet present and active in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And though we're familiar with those terms, we're familiar with those denominations, those names, I would suggest that often the Holy Spirit is left in the shadows, at least in our practice in our, in our conversation, in our understanding. We pray to God, we talk about God, we speak of Jesus, we know that Jesus' death and resurrection and the shedding of his blood is what bought us redemption and we pray to him. Um, but I think we're uncertain a lot of times about the Holy Spirit. Or he's kind of the forgotten member, or maybe I should better say the ignored member of the Trinity. What is his role? How does he work in the church? How do we, as children of God, relate to the Holy Spirit? And I would never dare to say or to think that I could explain him, that I could explain the Holy Spirit, that I, or that I'm able to understand all that he is or how his work is united with that of the full Godhead. But in the book of Acts, Luke consistently emphasizes and honors the Holy Spirit. And as I said, on the very first day when we began our study of Acts, that rather than call this book the Acts of the Apostles, many have said that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because he is the focus. He is the power of everything good that happens in this book. He is the initiator. He is the one moving and forming and shaking the church. Today we're going to look at the same passage we examined last week. It's the account of the gospel coming to the population of Samaria through Philip. And then the subsequent attempt of the magician Simon to buy the power of God, to buy influence within this new church with money. Last week we looked at the contrast between the gospel of self as revealed in Simon, and then the gospel of Christ as preached by Philip. But today, I want us to focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in this account. I've explained to you before the literary device used by a number of biblical authors called a chiastic structure. 
I can't go into details on this today in this passage, but know that it's there. And the author, Luke, has paired um, successively narrowing concepts until he gets right to what's at the middle. And what's at the middle of this account, and actually if you look at it on the page, you will actually, even on the page, what's right at the middle is the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit into the Samaritan church. And that's where I want us to have our focus today. So I'm going to read this passage again, as I did last week, in chapter 8 of Acts, beginning with verse 9. And after that, we want to draw out three, I even hesitate to call them roles, but three actions, three activities of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and had amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart's not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The first action or role of the Holy Spirit that I would like us to see in this passage is that he, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of salvation. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is God's guarantee of salvation. It's God's promise, 
that at the end of all things, at the end of a person's earthly life, they are guaranteed salvation. God will bring that to fulfillment in them. And his promise of that, his guarantee, is the Holy Spirit. I can't believe I'm saying this. I really can't. My family and I bought a dog. We bought a dog for Christmas. And uh, this dog is actually in Paraná, and it's going to be delivered to us next week. But in order to ensure that the dog would be ours and would not end up belonging to someone else, we paid a deposit. It's not the full value of the dog, but it's a partial value, nonetheless saying this dog belongs to us. So when God has purchased through the blood of Christ his sons and daughters, he places, he gives them his spirit to live in them, and that is the guarantee. That is the sinal, as we would say in Portuguese, the promise that he will save them, that they are saved and that they will be saved. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that salvation. When a person genuinely becomes a child of God, they come to Jesus in repentance and belief. When that repentance and belief is genuine, God places his spirit within that person. So consider Simon in this account that we read this morning. He had the outward signs of salvation. The text said that he believed. Now clearly, even though Luke doesn't go into details on this, there's a difference in in the belief of Simon and in the belief of the others who were hearing Philip's preaching. It would appear from the context that Philip's belief was from the mouth outward. So he was able to say, oh, I believe, he confesses with his mouth. Maybe he was able to assent to the tenets of the faith. But as we see, as we continue to read, it was not transformational his faith was not a saving faith. It had not touched his heart. And this idea of simply believing, being able to intellectually assent to certain propositions is not enough. That's not what scripture, that's not what Paul and Silas meant when they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And James reminds us in chapter two, speaking to the believers, and he says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And I think this is the context in which we understand Simon. There's an intellectual assent, an outward acknowledgement of belief, but it is not a transformational faith in Jesus Christ. And then Luke goes on to tell us that he was baptized. He believed and he was baptized. Again, a crucial, unavoidable sign of salvation, his baptism. But then Simon's heart is revealed. And what, what is shown in, in the core of his being is a lust for power and recognition. And that comes to the fore as he offers Peter and John money in exchange for them, passing on to him, the ability to lay his hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. And so we see Simon's faith is not gen genuine. And this is the most important part. He himself does not receive the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't ask Peter and John for the Holy Spirit. He just asks them for the ability to give it to others. He only wants the admiration and adulation of people, that honor of being the one with the power. 
It's clear that Simon is not saved. He has not surrendered to Jesus. And as I said earlier, the final proof of this is that he does not receive the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8, 9, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So again, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of salvation. He is God's testimony of salvation in his church individually and corporately. It's the mark of God upon his daughter, upon his son, that says, this one belongs to me. This one's mine. True saving faith in Christ will result in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a surrender of the individual to the life of the Spirit within them. The second role of the Holy Spirit that I want us to note here is that the Holy Spirit lives in the believer. Now, often when we say that phrase, the Holy Spirit lives in the believer, we emphasize the word in. The Holy Spirit lives in the believer, and that's worth emphasizing. But today, I want us to emphasize a different word. The Holy Spirit lives in the believer. Far too often, we, or maybe I should better say I, go about my, my daily business, my daily life, acknowledging or aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in me or, or is, is in me. But the way that I actually live, think, and act would suggest often that I am not aware that the Holy Spirit is alive or living in me. Many of you know the Rast family. And uh, when their eldest daughter, Grace, uh, graduated from high school, um, the school uh, for all the seniors made, had these full life-size cutouts made of um, the, the senior class. So there was this full-sized photo of Grace that was put onto um, a thicker material so it would stand up on its own. And they had great fun in their home with this cutout of Grace. She had left and gone to college, but they would move it around the house. They would hide it in different places. They'd put it in the closet so someone would open the closet and there's, you know, <laughs> Grace staring out at them or... Um, and so it, it would cause moments of, of, of being startled and, and also, you know, some tears of saudade for the family from time to time. But that's not grace. So we can't say that grace is living in that home. Someone might argue, it's like, well, it's a full, I mean, what, what more could you want? I mean, it's, it's a full color, life-size photo of grace. But that's just it. It's a photo. It's inanimate. And... I think that we often consider the Spirit in us more like a photograph. It's like a picture of the Holy Spirit that's hung somewhere in a corner in our soul, but he's not active. He's passive. The Holy Spirit in the believer is not a photograph. He is the living God. Scripture states the reality of the life of the Spirit and the believer in a number of different places. One of those is Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who lives in you. Now, again, you might ask, okay, that makes sense. We understand that proposition, but how do you see that in this passage? Where does that come in with the whole Simon account? We don't know what it was. Luke doesn't tell us. But there was some visible, notable sign that the Holy Spirit had come into these Samaritan believers. We know that because Simon wanted it. If there were no evidence, then Simon wouldn't have needed to, quote, buy this ability. He could just watch Peter and John say, okay, they're laying hands on people, they're praying, and so oh, I can do that. Hey, you know what, I can give you the Holy Spirit too. Come up. Why? Because there's no proof. There was no visible sign. I think it's intentional that Luke doesn't tell us what that sign was, but there was clearly evidence that the living spirit of God had come into these people. Maybe it was speaking in tongues. Maybe it was the, sign, the, the, the flames of fire above their heads as the church experienced at Pentecost. Maybe it was the sound of a rushing wind. We don't know. Luke does not tell us. I think that was intentional. Whatever it was, it was impressive. And it had a great impact on Simon. When the Holy Spirit lives in someone, there will be evidence. Why? Because he is living, because he's alive, because he's active. This week I made pizza dough. And uh, you know what? When I bake, yeast always gets me. I, I, I have such a difficult time getting the temperature of the liquid right to activate the yeast. Because if the water is too cold, it won't awaken the life of the yeast. If it's too hot, it'll kill the yeast. So you have to find the, the perfect temperature, but when the temperature's right, there's evidence that that yeast is alive and working. How do you know? Well, the dough into which that, which that activated yeast is mixed, it grows, it expands, it rises. If the yeast is dead, nothing happens. If it's just a photograph of yeast that you mix in with the flour, there's going to be no growth. When the Holy Spirit lives in us, there will be evidence. Generally speaking, we can call this evidence transformation. Our lives will be transformed. The way we live will show that the Spirit of God is alive in us. The Bible calls this fruit. Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, you've heard that list of fruit many times. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul follows up that list by saying, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Sisters and brothers, the Holy Spirit lives in us and he lives to transform us ever more fully into the image of God. It's his life that produces his fruit. So let us keep in step with him. The Holy Spirit is alive, and where he lives, there will be evidence. The third truth or role of the Holy Spirit in this passage is that he is the great unifier of the church. Let me say that one more time. The Holy Spirit is the great unifier of the church. This passage has caused a significant amount of confusion within different branches of the church for over a thousand years. 
The issue arises from the fact that in this account, people were converted to Christianity, so they came to belief in Christ Jesus and were baptized, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit came at a later date. So there was a separation between those two events. And there are some who believe that this is normative for the Christian life and for the church. So that salvation or a saving belief in Jesus is one thing. And then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a separate thing that occurs later. Or may not occur depending on the, the situation of the individual. And we can see from this passage why that question might arise. But... You know what? Luke doesn't tell us one way or another. Luke doesn't say this is the way it should be, but he also doesn't say that this is a one-time event. And I think that's intentional. I've, I've spoken before, and you're aware of this, the difference between a passage that is prescriptive and a passage that is descriptive. This is a descriptive passage. Luke is simply relating what happened. And it's problematic to base theological principles on one biblical occurrence alone that's not necessarily repeated and it's not prescriptive in nature. But the fact remains that the way the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritans is unique and it's different from what we've seen so far in Acts. Why might this be? Well, as we explore that, I, I want you to know that there are three times in Acts where the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is given special, unique description. One is at Pentecost. The second is here with the Samaritans. And the third is when the first Gentiles come to Jesus. I don't think that's accidental that at those incredibly important, crucial, transitional moments of growth in the church, God, through Luke, takes time to point out and to describe how the Holy Spirit was working and present and coming into those new believers at those transitional times. But to grasp it in this particular passage, we need to understand first who the Samaritans are. When the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun and taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire, the Jewish people who remained behind, who were not deported, they intermarried with the pagan nations that came in and moved into their territory. And the descendants of those unions became the Samaritans. When Ezra and Nehemiah returned to the promised land from captivity in order to rebuild the temple, some of the Samaritans tried, they, they wanted to join in with them in the rebuilding efforts, but they were excluded. And, and they were not allowed to join with these returning Jews because they were considered impure because of their intermarriage with Gentiles. So as the Samaritan numbers grew and they became a nation, since they were excluded from the new temple, they built their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim and they started their own form of religion. So there was very, very deep division and hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, even though the Samaritans themselves were Jewish descendants. The Jews looked on the Samaritans as an impure race, as a nation of apostates. Geographically, Samaria was located right in the middle of the Israel of Jesus' day. 
So there was Israel in the north, Samaria in the middle, Israel in the south. And Jews who held themselves as holy and righteous, if they were traveling either from the south to the north or the north to the south, they would go to great lengths to avoid Samaritan territory. So they would go travel far out of their way to circumvent the Samaritans. Which brings to mind two interesting and important events from Christ's life. One is is Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well because Jesus travels directly through Samaritan territory, uh, which no self-respecting Jew of the day would do. And secondly, he engages in meaningful conversation with a woman. And thirdly, a woman of ill repute. And already Jesus is planting the seeds for those paying attention, for his followers saying, I have come for all people. The gospel is coming to all people, even those that you most despise. The gospel is for them as well. Of course, the other uh, Samaritan account that comes to our minds readily from Christ's life is the parable he told that we today call the Good Samaritan. You know, any Jew that heard that, that report would have hated it. That, that parable was anathema because in that parable, who's the good guy? Who's the hero? Who's the neighbor? It's the Samaritan. But this is Jesus already preparing the soil for those who are listening, for those who are paying attention. He's already showing that he has come, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. And now the gospel, which up, up to this point had only been proclaimed to and accepted by Jews in Jerusalem, it has come to the hated Samaritan people. And they're receiving Jesus with open arms, with repentance, with faith, with baptism, and with joy. And verse 14 says that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John. Now, I'm going to editorialize a little bit here. But I'm pretty certain this was an investigation. When the Jerusalem church heard that Samaritans, Samaritans were believing, we need to check this out. Maybe they even thought we need to put a stop to it. And maybe some of them said, you know, this is what happens when you just let people go and do what they want to do, like Philip. Who told Philip to go preach to the Samaritans? You know, who commissioned him? Who gave him the right to do that? Again, I'm editorializing. But Peter and John come and they're observant. What's going on here? But immediately, they sense and see the genuineness of the Samaritan faith. They lay their hands on them, they pray for them, and the Samaritan church receives the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit coming in this unique way, God speaks to both the Jerusalem church and to the new believers in Samaria. To the Jerusalem church, God says, the Samaritans have also become my children. They share in the gospel of Jesus just as much as you do. And if there were anyone in Jerusalem that were going to doubt or question this, who better to speak to the truth than John and Peter? They were the foremost apostles of the day. And they were the first-hand witnesses So if there had been any doubt back in Jerusalem, if anyone was grumbling about the Samaritans, Peter and John would have been there to say, "Um, 
just so you know, it's real. And secondly, God gave them the spirit through us. So it's real. And then to the Samaritan church, the Samaritans who had been oppressed and and mistreated, who had been looked down upon by the Jews, through this experience, the Lord says to them, you are fully my sons and daughters. You are full and equal participants in my gospel, in the death and the resurrection, the redemption of Jesus Christ. And the proof of that is that I am placing my spirit within you. And then in the future, if there was ever a doubt within the Samaritan church as to the legitimacy of their faith, they too would be able to say, but the Holy Spirit came to us through through Peter and John. This isn't something we just imagined. It's not something we made up. There are witnesses on both sides. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is the great unifier and reconciler of people. His life in believers reveals their equality of value before God, who does not give the Spirit only to the most privileged and withhold him from those who are poor or weak or less influential. God gives his Spirit freely and fully to anyone and everyone who comes to him in repentance through the blood of Jesus. And now, for the first time, for the first time in all history, Through the gospel and in the church, Jews and Samaritans are fully united, fully equal, fully sons and daughters of the Most High God. Within the church today, what causes our greatest divisions? This may vary from person to person, from thought to thought. We can have family divisions, we can have personality conflicts, we can have uh, divisions between uh, friends, between co-workers, whatever it may be. And as I consider the church today, I, I don't necessarily see, at least within, within our context in the West, I don't see race being the primary divider. I don't see ethnic background being the primary dividing point as it was with with the Jews and the Samaritans. I don't know what you see, but I think today it's politics. And I just see this causing so much bitterness and backbiting and anger and division within our church. Not, I'm not saying within our church specifically, but within the church more broadly. Um, and those who, who might self-identify as being more conservative or being on the right would look at the Samaritans on the left and say, I'm not, I'm not really sure they can receive the gospel. I'm not, I'm not sure that they can be genuine believers in Christ. And perhaps those of you or those of us who would self-identify as being on the left would look at those on the right, as those Samaritans on the right, and say, how can, how can we have anything to do with them? I, I don't even think they can really be Christians, you know? Think about who they support. The point I want to make here is that the Holy Spirit 
is the unifier of the church. Now, granted, that doesn't mean that we are unified in, in sin, that we're unified in brokenness, or that it doesn't matter about how we live, but we're unified by the Spirit and his fruit that he grows in us and through us. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul writes, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So how do, we, how do we conclude? How do we, we draw this to a close? How do we tie it together? Let's not ignore or minimize the role, the power, and the work of the Holy Spirit. He is our guarantee of salvation. He lives in us. He's not just hanging there as an inactive photograph. He lives in us as individuals and in the church corporate. Let us submit to his living presence. Uh, I suggest that one of the ways that we need to change in this regard is in how we think about the Holy Spirit in us. And for me, I can say very practically, it means something that I've done this week, to take time to actually think about, engage with, in my mind, the implications of having the living Holy Spirit in me. To even think about that fact. Holy Spirit, you live in me. You are alive and active in me. And then to ask the Lord, help me keep in step with your spirit, with the life of your spirit in me. Let me keep in step with that. Go where you lead. Follow where you convict. Repent when you bring sin to my, to my mind. Follow you as, you as the Holy Spirit interprets scripture to us. And finally, let us acknowledge the unity of the spirit that he is the unifying, reconciling, divine presence in the church, that our highest loyalty is not to a political party or a, a politician, but our highest, our highest honor, our highest submission, our, our greatest unifier is God Almighty. And his spirit in us is what unifies the church. Maybe we would be quick to cooperate with him in his peacekeeping, reconciling work. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace.